0: Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Today we talk with Dr. Edward Lopez, one of the leading public choice economists in the country. And we're gonna talk about the climate for free market ideas on college campuses, efforts to stifle his speech, and also talk about Public Choice 101. Check it out. going to happen, but but we never know for sure. Uh, my guest is Dr. Edward Lopez. Uh, you are a professor at Western Carolina University. Yep. And the founding director of the Center for the Study of Free Enterprise. You got there. that right. Yep. And my viewers are immediately wondering how it is. That a center for the study of free enterprise exists in this day and age on campus. Right. Okay. <laughs> so this isn't a this isn't a joke. This thing actually yeah. exists, right?
1: You're starting off with asking me to explain my existence. Yeah. Why are, are <laughs> okay. you are you legitimate? But, yeah.
0: But before I do that, and this is part of my strategy, is I'll I'll uh, liquor up my guests. Oh, to get I like them that. to get them to speak truth to power, and and you you said you're a fan of saison, so I pulled a saison from my cellar from the Vale. And it's called Pass Pass. Supposedly, it is extremely dry and effervescent.
1: And uh, it has a skull tunnel on the. And label. I'm now
0: realizing that we're not going to drink this because the. Oh, it's cor- it's a cork because bottle. Because we have a cork in yeah. it. This is a crisis. We're going to yeah. do a hard break right now, and I'll be back with a corkscrew.
1: Sounds good. <laughs> well, who puts a cork and a bottle cap? <laughs>
0: Okay, uh, that that could have ruined everything, and we always claim that we're live to tape and that that we we will never edit anything. But I make an exception, a hard exception, for good beer for
1: a court crisis. It's so, worth it. so
0: what kind of beers are you into? You said saison's. What else?
1: Uh, I must. My go-to is usually an American pale. My favorite is Sierra Nevada. I know that's boring and mainstream, but as I've gotten a little bit older, I like the lower ABVs and. That's a good one, it's got a, bo- a big body and a lot of flavor for it. Um, I also like the saisons, like you're opening right now. A good porter, not a stout, but a porter, is always uh, welcome.
0: So, um, Ken Grossman, the founder of Sierra Nevada, I've, I did a deep dive on him because I'm fascinated with, with beer as kind of a metaphor for entrepreneurship. And Ken Grossman is now a billionaire because of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. and he started I think he probably started illegally but he was he was running hops from Yakima Washington down to to uh, wherever Sierra Nevada is central northern Hop California or, uh, Chico Chico yeah. yeah and and he wasn't ever imagining like he, he borrowed money from his family he was never ever imagining that this would be a lucrative business he just wanted to make something different yeah okay and i love to tell these stories because you know people people get sort of cheers
1: cheers for the people
0: it's really nice so, so there's supposedly honey in this and I, I get yeah, a little bit through. of that, but mm-hmm. it's not sweet. It's it's very dry, a uh, l- little style. bit tart mm-hmm. of the style. So so now that we have a beer, we can we can get back to what we're talking. Yeah, about. we're going to be talking about beer. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, let's just talk <laughs> yeah. about beer then. Okay. But uh, but but tell me a little bit. It is the, the the Center for the Study of Free Enterprise at Western Carolina U- University is yeah. is a fairly new project. It was launched around what twenty fourteen. No, a little bit later, actually. Yeah.
1: Um, it was approved in late 2015, <clears throat> came together in 2016, and we started launching programs in 2017. So yeah. it's eh, I think we're in our second complete year right now.
0: I'm I'm old enough to remember when anything resembling free enterprise at the university level was at George Mason, at Chicago, Auburn, and then a couple of private schools, Hillsdale yeah. and Grove City, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And And now... These these centers actually are thriving at a number of universities across the country. Yeah, but there's some blowback to that. You you dealt with a lot of uh, hostility, particularly from from other departments in the university. Sure did. Um, yeah. It became part of this thing that that people probably haven't heard of yet. It's called UnCoke My Campus, where anybody that is suspected, just suspected of res- receiving money from the evil Coke brothers. Right must must be eliminated from this earth. Tell me a little bit about, about some of the early drama.
1: Right. So I guess a little bit of background to what the center is supposed to be doing uh, will be helpful. We're an undergrad institution. We're in the very western part of the state of about 11 million people. And we, in North Carolina, are really lacking for a voice on free enterprise issues. So... Um, putting all those things together the centers designed to support students and faculty on projects they were going to be doing otherwise but also to sort of lever up those projects and be and have them be part of the voice from the West yeah. that's kind of one of our taglines is the voice from the, the free enterprise voice from the West so uh, you know when I moved to North Carolina from Northern California, I thought I knew my geography, but uh, it helps to point out that as far, you know, as, as far west as you think the state of North Carolina goes, drive another hour, and that's where I live. Yeah. Keep going another hour, and that's where Western Carolina University is. And then go another hour, and that's where the border for Georgia and Tennessee is. So it's a very you know, remote part of the state. The population isn't that dense. Uh, the nearest city is Asheville and that's where I live which is almost an hour away from campus. So you know what we want to do is in this environment is at an undergrad institution is say okay um, Mr. Student Miss faculty member you guys want to work together you guys want to achieve great things you guys want to work on this issue that affects public policy in the state but you don't have the resources for it here's the center for the study of free enterprise to support you and what you and what you want to do. Um, and that's unfolded into all types of programs that we're doing now. We're working on the opioid and addiction crisis in the area. We're working on the Nurse Practice Act in the state that limits the ability for nurse practitioners to do their jobs, a whole host of things. So, um, a lot but, a
0: lot of it seemed to be sort of focused on regional economic development and and empowering people. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
1: And you know, that's a big part of the university's overall mission because in a sparsely populated area the university is a big presence, and we traditionally, and actually by our written mission, take it upon ourselves to sort of be one of the leaders in the region's economic development. So the center does that stuff too. And you might ask, you know, well, what's wrong? <laughs> what's the big this problem with sound those things? doesn't scary yeah, so far. Yeah, you yeah. might ask that. But, yeah. um, but we have to rewind to when I was proposing the center mm-hmm. and the way that that was perceived, and the way that a lot of folks got agitated. You know, uh, uh, based on that perception, so um, to put it, I think in those in those terms, here's a free market economist with longtime ties to the Charles Koch Foundation. Um, he's got a big pot of money, a promised from the Koch Foundation, and he's coming in here to you know change the university and alter the curriculum in a way that serves the interests of the Koch brothers.
0: I and, looked you up by the way on, yeah. on Coke my campus and am I on there you are on there <laughs> that's and, great and the fact I'll drink to that yeah drink to that <laughs> yeah. like this would be a, a scar of honor cheers to that but so, uh, hope- part of uh part of your uh list of crimes is past president of the public choice society
1: oh god and, <laughs> and
0: past president of the association of private enterprise economists I always have a hard time with that one. right and these are all um, um Gatherings of, of free market scholars that that do academic research. So you your your bill of particulars is particularly damning to yeah. to some people. Yeah, and the irony there. It's, it's okay like, here. We're yeah, gonna, we'll, we'll tolerate it here. Yeah, I
1: mean the irony there is like you know real free market scholars they wouldn't probably let me in. Uh, I think that's an overstatement. But also, a Public Choice Society, it's not really that type of environment as much as it is just folks from political science and. Yep. Economics getting together and presenting their papers. It's, it's on It's not even
0: slightly political. It's not even yeah. ideological in the sense that 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 you've been accused of.
1: And it has those. It has roots in free market ideology. But a lot of a lot of our past presidents are lefties and don't really think about whether they're advocating for or uh, arguing for markets or non-markets. They're just doing their research.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you were um, confronted by this. Um, and I I don't know the process exactly, and I don't want to get into too much weeds of, of of sort of the campus culture, but but there was a public hearing of sorts where you were you were being asked to explain the the mission and purpose of the of the new center, and a professor from the humanities department showed up, and and it's fascinating to to read I, re- I read his statement and and it goes on and on and on about about intellectual tolerance and diversity of opinion and and how we we need to have that environment but and you know what they say about everything that precedes the but but we can't have this guy and right. we can't have these right. ideas because yeah. because that's intolerable right and this is playing out on campus writ large but but you were you were the target
1: in a faculty senate meeting yeah. without any warning. So in other words on the record.
0: So you were you were like yeah. set up.
1: And you know the phrase intellectual um honesty uh came up so many times in right. that letter yeah. which is a way of accusing, you know, the person you're talking about of being a liar. Yeah. Uh so um yeah at the end of the day I was accused of being a liar multiple times by a colleague in front of everyone else on record for wanting to establish this center.
0: Yeah. Mhm. But your but your approach to this, and this this is why I want you to lead with this story. Your approach is is um, appears to have a happy ending, and and you you said I have nothing to hide. Um, I would love for this entire community to judge me based on our work and based on our yeah. ideas, and that's what you proceeded to do.
1: Yeah. So um, you know my my reaction to all of this. Uh, After sort of absorbing the blow (laughs) is to say, well, you know, look, I'm not going to change what I'm trying to do based on some uninformed and really harsh and ultimately wrong criticisms. Uh, I'm going to play the long game. And I'm going to push through and get this center up and running and start these programs that benefit students and faculty in the community. And I'm going to let the work of the center speak for itself. And like I mentioned, I'm in this second year, second complete year of programs. And, um, you know, so far so good. I think that the reaction is that this is the center and its programs and the things that we're doing are on mission for the university. They're good for the students and faculty and community. And, you know, this notion that here's a, uh, an operative of the radical right politicizing the university towards the ends of fat cats and big corporations is nothing, uh, they're, they're, they, the two don't meet. Yeah. It has nothing to do with reality.
0: Yeah, I love the vernacular because the, the, the far right, the extreme right was, was used a lot in in the ultra stories. conservative ultra conservative yeah, which has been called a lot really bad yeah, ultra. Yeah, it's ultra ultra I mean... bad um but it, it shows and and maybe they know better maybe maybe they don't but certainly um you know people reading the stories don't seem to understand at all what the classical liberal program is because it it's not ultra conservative it's um it's trying to figure out ways to 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 help people to thrive
1: yeah um and I think that you know the the whole. You mentioned classical liberal, and I think that someone from the really critical perspective, as you know, uh, as far as my story goes, wouldn't stop at that term. They would jump to neoliberal, and neoliberal ov- obviously is bad. Yeah. And so you know that's the end of the that's the end of the thought process right there.
0: Yeah, there's all these these caricatures, um, and and we could we could do a whole program on this this false idea that the ideological spectrum is. Is left to right anyway. I, I think it's about authority and oppression versus freedom and opportunity. And it's um, not party based either. Yeah, it's not yeah. party. It's yeah. not left versus right. It's not
1: ideological. It's it's whether or not you based. believe in
0: people, basically, mm-hmm. in in my mind. But but let's. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, particularly that 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 they're attacking you because you were not born a billionaire Koch brother. You <laughs> you started from fairly. Humble means your your dad was was Mexican, your mom was from Texas, and and I, I think that perhaps you you didn't know it yet, but maybe you became a libertarian the moment that you tried government cheese.
1: Ah, uh, the government cheese story, yeah. yeah. So uh, I did. That, I, that would make anybody a libertarian, I, you know. If you've had government cheese, you do, you you want the real thing right yeah. away, yeah. yeah. And um, there was a time. Um, growing up seventh out of eight kids, big household, um, big house, actually nice neighborhood. We were always safe. We didn't have to worry about our existence, but we didn't oftentimes have the money to pay the bills. And I remember, you know, scurrying around and filling up the, the water jugs because the the water authority was outside at the curb turning the water off. Yeah. And um, I remember for a stretch, we ate government food. Yeah. Um, it wasn't for a long stretch, but it was long enough to remember. And I think that I think the, the re, how that fits in the story here is my early interest in economics took shape around programs that are intended to help people in a low-income or economically disadvantaged situation. And, um, you know, we can get into the story if you want to, but the, 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 the end result, the long and the short of it is economics helped me to understand and be able to demonstrate to people in a persuasive way how there's a disconnect between the good intentions behind Public assistance programs, poverty programs, and their actual effects. You know, my mom used to say she was a, a nurse and she was also a, sort of a serial uh, entrepreneur, one one uh, one failed business after another. And uh, she used to say that um, the that welfare destroys the human spirit, and you know that's part of my early background my upbringing yeah and what I found in economics was something that squares with that in a more analytical way like I mentioned that you could demonstrate and argue and persuade with that there are good reasons why those good intentions are hard to achieve in a real program where you're talking about real people
0: so, yeah yeah and that's like if, if I were to characterize your research you you've spent a lot of focus on the unintended and perhaps um contrary outcomes of public policies that uh, have a stated intention of doing X but actually end up creating more problems than solutions.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you set up a whole, uh, in, the, in the Lyndon Johnson era, when you set up a whole set of programs, great society programs, the bottom line of which is to help people uh, get out of poverty, but the end result of which is to create poverty traps for people and ruin, ruin, you know, untold number of lives. You have a problem on your hands. The stated intentions or stated objectives—they're not meeting up with the actual results. And the way that I began to sort of peel that apart is to understand how the role of people responding to incentives, right? This is the economics of it. Yeah. And um, you know, the my mom's message of it destroys the human spirit meets with the incentive argument and say and say, you know, look, we're giving people the Great Society program is giving people the incentives to do things that make sense for themselves in the short term, but are destroying their prospects over the long term. And that's the no- nature of the poverty trap. Yeah, And so, uh, you know, what that did is it got me interested in asking, you know, the types of questions like, well, why do those programs start in the first place? This is not some mystery, some secret, Uh, you know, any undergrad um, taking a decent class can figure these things out and do and and does figure these things out. So why have the programs? Um, Why do they stick on the books? And that got me to start to think about if incentives matter for looking at the welfare recipient and the person administering the welfare programs. Maybe we can look at the question of why the programs start in the first place from this perspective. And that's what got me interested in studying politics and bureaucracy from the perspective of economics, which is what you know incentives matter.
0: Yeah. It, so I started, I started the, the first program was actually um, me talking with uh, Matt Battaglia, who's the guy who does all the fantastic artwork. Love the logo. On our, yeah. on our beer glassware um, available at freethepeople.org. Um, for a very reasonable price. Also as a sticker on my desk yeah. in my Stickers, house. Stickers, <laughs> T shirts, hats. We we're more of a lifestyle brand. We're 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 exactly the opposite of what you guys are trying to do. There there'll be no serious ideas dealt with ever on our show. But the uh the, the first episode I was sort of describing what I called the George Mason School of Economics. And and we both come from the same sort of graduate school environment. That's how we first met. Yeah. And you're yeah. you're so much younger than I am, but and I resent you for that. But <laughs> but I, I think of the George Mason uh, tradition as as two filters by which I, I look at every public policy, and one is sort of the Hayekian market process knowledge problem, that that always tells me that that people here in Washington D.C. can't possibly do nearly as many things to re- redesign complex economic systems as they think they can. And so there's that, there's that fatal conceit that, that you know more than everybody else and you supplant that process. And I think that's a fundamental critique of, of much of, of these well-meaning programs. But the other half is the public choice incentive problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought uh, what I might get you to do as, as, as an actual scholar in public choice, walk us through some of the basic concepts of, of public choice economics and start with Start with James Buchanan and and him winning the Nobel Prize. You tell that story in your book. Yeah. Uh, give a plug for your book. Okay, Shameless yeah. plug. What's uh, it, what's it yeah, called Yeah, so
1: my co-author, Wayne Layton, yeah. who you also know from George Mason Economics and I, we published this book. It's called Mad Men, Intellectuals, and Academic Scribblers. And it came out about five years ago or so. <clears throat> the idea behind this book is to situate what we're calling public choice into this question of why do we get bad policies why do they stay on the books but also and this is where we're I think advancing things is like why do sometimes these bad policies get repealed because yeah. that was kind of an under appreciated question uh, in the in the scholarly world where I live so yeah public um,
0: choice at its core, sometimes feels quite dismal. It's like, you know, yeah. voting is irrational and, yeah. and, and bureaucrats are going to eat our lunch and in the end democracy dies. And, and it,
1: you know, powerful people who are self-interested are the ones who get in control yeah.
0: and, you know, it's it's bad for the rest of us. So, but, but, it, there, but there's obviously more to it than that. Right. It's
1: not just a council of despair. Yeah. And we have these uh, episodes of where... Uh, Decisions that get made in in national capitals and state capitals actually uh, do you know good things or you know undo bad things, and so this was the real question that we um, were getting at Wayne and I in our book Mad Men. and along the way we tell the story of public choice and the origins of of it through the lens of Jim Buchanan, uh, and as you mentioned, he won the Nobel Prize for public choice in 1986. So I think that one I was, way to, I was actually.
0: Yeah a student in his constitutional yeah. economics class yeah. the day that happened. And so I got to watch the circus and, and that little vignette. I knew to that, tell. I knew you were gonna say that, yep. Um, but the vignette, um, yeah. it, I, I read the public choice section this morning in, in preparation for this conversation and the, and the vignette about Buchanan and the, what the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the all the smart people, right, the intellectuals right. had to say about it, yeah. were exactly, almost verbatim, what you're your your professor showed up and said in your organizational meeting, right? Uh, intellectual diversity is very important, but not not this, right? No, not this. Yeah. But what was what was the Buchanan insight?
1: Yeah. So I think that somebody who um, is looking out the window and trying to understand what's happening in the world, uh, just take for example the deficit and the debt. Yeah. Um, how w- what's going on there? Um, you can have an opinion on it. And that's fine, but the reason it's there can be explained by what we call in public choice and Buchanan's thought. And you know, part one is who's making the spending decisions. It's um, legislators and um, their, their their responses to what voters want. And you know, when you accumulate debt, what you're doing is the benefits are going to current. People, voters, but the costs are going off onto the future, and in the game of re- what legislators respond to, those future voters don't have a seat at the table. Yeah, and this is one of the insights that Buchanan uh, brings up, and actually, it kind of is this sort of council of despair. And mm-hmm. uh, so when uh, there's there's more by the, to by
0: the way, just to despair a little bit. Yeah. The, the February. <laughs> it's worth it sometimes. The February yeah. federal deficit. Is two hundred thirty-four billion dollars, and I'm old enough to remember when we worried about an annual an budget, annual budget deficit, deficit of less than two hundred thirty-four billion, and and that's why we're at twenty-two trillion and ticking away. So so we're living in a public choice world where we're spending the future, yeah, uh, on a daily basis. Yeah,
1: and you know Buchanan was also interested in ethics, and he made the ethical argument about you know laying that on to future generations, stealing from unborn yeah. children. And uh, he's he's this he's this sort of maverick relative to the mainstream, and he's got really good ideas and really good he makes really good points, um, to the point where they, they can't be ignored, and to the point where they start to be uh, embraced by uh, people who are kind of in the mainstream, and then to the point where um, the Nobel Committee recognizes it, and the reaction at that point, which is what you're talking about, was um, you know fairly dismissive they said, oh, well, one of the things that, that the folks at the New York Times and Washington Post said was, well, tell me about your rationale for the deficit. Why why is it there? And Buchanan gives his answer. And the Washington Post says, yeah, but that's just common sense. Does that really deserve a Nobel Prize? You know, uh, not the most charitable uh, right, sort of right. congratulatory uh, response there. And then a lot of mainstream economists trying to grapple with the reality that Buchanan's ideas have now been embraced in this Way with this highest honor. Started doing the blame game, yeah. and they said, "Oh well, the committee in Sweden must be somehow you know off their rocker, or uh, oh these these ideas of conservative economics are really popular these days, and you know anything but the reality uh, was good for them."
0: By the way, I love the fact that um, that's common sense is somehow a fundamental critique of, of oh, a good a, idea. Yeah, it's a bad thing, I and suppose. So, <laughs> I mean what what is the implication of that? It's like you have to find ideas that have no common sense. A good idea all. would yeah. make would make no sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the insight was uh politicians are just politicians and government actors and the people that impose macroeconomic policies on us are every bit as self interested as we are. Right. When we're out there working to feed our families and, and we're you know we're trying to maximize our returns and and achieve things that are in our best interest and the you know, Buchanan call it politics without romance right yeah and and the entire macro program is based on the assumption that that the people that you give that much power are going to be better and smarter than you are
1: well yeah and you mentioned and that's both what upset them. the knowledge problem and the incentive problem mean yeah. just look at macro policy and the, you know that the two meet pretty strongly there um but I also I also think that this this can be not just an explanation for why things go bad, but um, a tool and something that you think of as an ingredient for if you want things to get better. Yeah. So um, you know you you were looking at your phone just a minute ago. Mine's right over here, and at the time when we were in graduate school, <laughs> which is you know barely a generation ago, these things were not even. Um, Not even barely a dream, right? I remember my cell phone I had when I was in grad school. It was it was that thick and it had a a telescoping antenna and it flipped out. And the only thing it did was voice. Right? That's the only thing it did. Well, you know, fast forward and we have these technological miracles in our pockets, and everybody has them. My ten year old has one. So, what happened there? Part of the ingredient was the FCC moved towards auctions for the radio frequency spectrum. We privatized the airwaves. And when did that happen? That happened under Bill Clinton. Um, So where's the sort of interest of the policymakers um, come into play here? Where does it come into play? Uh, Well, it turns out that Bill Clinton went to the ceremony to celebrate the first auction of radio frequency spectrum. Wayne and I write about this in the book. And, um, you know, they had a photo op And the commissioner was there and the, 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 the chair and the other commissioners were there and the president of the United States was there and they had one of those big checks out in front and it said to the U S taxpayer. And it was some billion dollars. I forget the number now. And, you know, and as the photo was sort of staging, you know, Clinton does what Clinton did and he kind of nudged somebody next to him. He's like, I'd go anywhere for a check this big, (laughs) you know? And I think that that sort of helps to sort of crystallize. He wanted that to happen. Because he ran on a platform of deficit hawkery, and this uh, contribution to the to the U.S. Treasury actually made a dent in the deficit those days. So it was every bit in his interest. It was, it in was a budget interest. offset. It was a bu- yeah. yeah, it was very much in his interest yeah. to back this thing.
0: You know, one of the yeah. um, perhaps one of the ironies for for partisans that might watch this is that is that Bill Clinton did that and unleashed a, um, a technological wave of innovation right. that that. We couldn't survive without today, um, but you know Jimmy Carter did the same thing, particularly with transportation. Um, and today, um, partisans uh, on a daily basis demonize the the Trump administration for for deregulating um, right. on the administrative yeah. side. That that you know, you know they always say you know children are going to die because of X, and you, it doesn't matter what it is. They fill it in, and and yet you know Democrats. Have, have been a key part of this this sort of counter-revolution that pushed back against the, the endless, mindless growth of the regulatory state.
1: Yeah, you know, I, and I think that it goes back to uh, n- it not being a partisan or ideological issue. You know, look, look at the main figures in play with airline deregulation, with privatizing the airwaves, these guys, you know, Ronald Coase and Alfred Kahn, or the, they're they're the economists' names, and they're they're you know they're out in the in congressional testimony, they're out making the phone calls to, um, you know, peddle their ideas. They're given the interviews in the press, and consistently they're saying this is not a question of whether governments are better or markets are better. This is a question of getting the regulation right. This is not a question of, you know, any kind of deregulation necessarily being a bad thing because it empowers corporations to screw the little guy. Uh, this is a question of what types of regulatory framework works the best, given the technology, given the time, a, a, you know, the the age, uh, and so forth. And so it wasn't like these you know, radical free market ideologues came in and rigged the political process. And the next thing you know, they everything's were, deregulated. They
0: were, they were Brookings institutions. Yeah, guys. they were actually
1: moderates. And, yeah. and it happens under, under a lot of Democratic presidencies. Um, you know, Carter with the airline dereg and also transporta- other, other transportation uh, industries, trucking and whatnot. And, you know, Clinton, um, not just with spectrum privatization, but also welfare reform. And, you know, actually, we ran kind of a budget uh, surplus under Clinton. So, you know, look, I think that somebody who wants to understand, you know, what's going on in the world needs to peel apart this sort of Fox News versus MSNBC. You know, each of them is a voice of their respective parties. They need to peel apart this sort of, okay, you're left wing. I'm not. And we can't have a conversation anymore Uh, and realize that, you know, first of all, both parties. Have grown this uh, government and created the debt that we have. It's happened under Republicans as much as, if not more so, than um, you know, than Democrats. And uh, you know, it's not going to get better by just sort of saying, "Okay, let's elect the good guy." Yeah, I think things might get better if if uh, if, if Matt Kibbe or Ed Lopez were elected. But I have too much dirty laundry. I can't I can't survive the, the process. Oh, no, I would be corrupted yeah. from day yeah, one. Yeah. I, I oh, would... and that's the point I was going to make. I yeah. mean, look at how look at the left's reaction to when Obama got elected. I mean, the first thing he did was sort of drop a bunch of his, uh, like, what did he do on what did he do on marijuana after he got elected?
0: He he ramped up enforcement.
1: Yeah, what did he do on you know the, the 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 conflicts abroad? He prosecuted them even stronger than Bush did. I right? think he
0: I think he dropped. I forget what the number is. Logan do you remember he dropped so many more bombs than, yeah. than Bush did. Yeah. But he, he got a Nobel Prize so. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, th- like, you know the, the, the good thing good. is they front loaded that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh yeah, but point is like once you
0: And he also uh, like very aggressive on deportation. Yeah. of it's, it's, of, uh, that's of illegal right. immigrants that's right. and and so it part of this part of this political mythology is incredibly frustrating cuz it's not fact based at all. And
1: I think that part of the mythology is um, your party's bad, my party's good, uh, I can't grant you a single point, argumentatively, otherwise you're gonna think that I buy into everything. Um, it's a left-right thing. No, it's about power and incentives.
0: Yeah, so th- let's, let's talk about a classic public choice um, concept in, in that, because, because parties exist in part to protect the two-party cartel. But they also serve as sort of a, a proxy for for an ideology, right And you know, people will vote Republican because they think they're going to get X or they'll vote Democrat because they think they're going to vote y. And you discuss this in your book the, the, the concept is the public choice concept is is rational ignorance. Mm-hmm. and And I like to point out there's a there's a phrase amongst conservatives that they, they say in a sort of a derogatory phrase, low information voters, right. And I always go out of my way to say, um, I live and breathe this stuff every day, and I am a low information voter. <laughs> I couldn't possibly know all of the the intertwined incentives and and who's showing up and which senator's office and what's buried in a bill that no one gets to read right. before they vote on it. So, so we live in a world of, of political radical ignorance, but but that's sort of uh, you know, the public choice explanation is, It's rational not to know everything because you got more important things to do with your life.
1: Right. I mean, information is hard to get your hands on. Yeah. And let's suppose that you did spend a good chunk of your time um, looking up the records of every representative that you have all the way up the chain. What good is that gonna do you? At some point, you can cast a vote. Um, If you spend enough additional time, sure, you can start writing letters. You can have your voice, um, you know, resonate louder than other voices do, but it's not going to be that much louder. It's not going to be that influential. Uh, and so, you know, the costs are high and the, and the gains are relatively low. And so what, what what that ends up doing is it creates um, some leeway among people who are making the decisions in the policy world. And, you know, a little while ago I said they're they're going to be responsive to what voters want. Uh, and now I'm saying that there's leeway to be unresponsive to voters. Well, which one is it? And, you know, it's all contextual. It, de- it can depend on what the issue is. It can depend on what the timing is. Uh, but, you know, I, I wrote my dissertation on term limits, congressional term limits. And it turns out that Congress voted on term limits, uh, whether to impose term limits on themselves, yeah. right? It's kind of an interesting
0: thing. It was like a vote in 95, yeah. right? Yeah. So yeah. there
1: was a vote in 95, um, and then there was another vote in 97 interestingly there was a supreme court decision in between those two and the voting the the supreme court ruled that individual states cannot impose term limits on their own members and that radically changed how members of congress voted on it compared in 97 compared to in 95 uh, you know so it, it, when the when the heat is on is when they're most likely to be responsive to the voters mm-hmm. but you know how do you generate that heat it tends to happen Almost spontaneously, it, the the political winds blow where they where they will. Some of it can be engineered, uh, but also at the same time, just count the number of time, of attempts to engineer that, and you'll be close to the number of failures uh, in attempting to engineer that.
0: Oh, I know. I was a Tea Party organizer, right. and yeah. and we were going to balance the budget, and and we were treated perhaps worse than you are um, sometimes on your own campus for being. Crazy, crazy idea that we would balance the budget, and and here we are—the the, the debt and the deficit is, is unimaginably large.
1: Neither um, of the two parties want to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's no incentive. The an, another concept that I th- I think is essential, and I in another place where I think honest progressives, who they don't like crony capitalism, Bernie Sanders. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they don't, they don't like cronyism and they know, she actually ran against the incumbent um, arguing that he's in bed with Wall Street. Mm-hmm. He's one of the architects of the Wall Street bailout and and public choice economists have this, this concept called regulatory capture. Explain that a little bit.
1: Well, okay, so if you are in an industry that can be regulated in a way that keeps your competitors out, that's gonna be extremely valuable to you. Um, But if you're a consumer of the goods that that industry produces, you might be one of many millions of people. And the the increased price that you would have to pay to get this benefit to the industry by keeping the competitors out, it might be just a, a small amount. So this is the story with the sugar program, the U.S. sugar program. Which consists of, you know, trade restrictions. We don't like the Brazilians. We don't. We think their sugar is bad. We don't want them to control the world markets. And then also some price supports, and these go to U.S. Uh, sugar producers. Well, it turns out that that the the Government Accountability Office do, does um, studies on this. And they estimate the number of billions of dollars um, that that's worth to domestic sugar growers and their employees. And they also estimate uh, about how, by how much um, sugar users pay more uh, for sugar because of these programs. And it turns out that uh, sugar users uh, pay a lot more than what the benefit is to uh, the sugar growers. And you know, so if you think about, okay, we're going to take a, a bucket and we're going to scoop some wealth out of consumers and sugar using industries. Yeah. And we're going to come over and we're going to bring that bucket and we're going to dump it on to the sugar growers. Well, it turns out there's big old leaks in this bucket. <laughs> and the amount that you scoop out is not the same as the amount that you dump on. Yeah. And you know, that's these there's I don't know how I many there's numerous examples. There's like a galaxy of these examples of regulatory capture. You know what I have when I common. worked on
0: yep. when I worked on Capitol Hill, we um I convinced my boss, he's from Florida, and I convinced him to write a bill that repealed the sugar yeah. program. All right. And How'd that work for him? <laughs> um, yeah. He ended up loving it, it yeah. he was he was a little uncomfortable there for a while okay. because the, the sugar industry is incredibly politically powerful <laughs> right. in Florida. Um, and there's two brothers, the fanul brothers um, mm-hmm. pretty much own the sugar industry in Florida, uh, which is, I think, the primary source. I, I think the other source is sugar beets in Minnesota, something right. like that. Maybe some in some Hawaii, out. but I think they've, they, they've pretty yeah. Much that's not a up. big part of the market.
1: Yeah. And there's some I think in the in the Mountain West. Yeah, yeah.
0: And and uh, um, one of the first things that happened after my boss dropped this legislation is that the uh, Republican Party has this this annual dinner, and one of the Fanuel brothers. There's two of them. One of whom invests heavily in Republicans, and the other one invests heavily in Democrats. Yeah, great. And he actually bought the seat so that he could sit next to my boss. Mm-hmm. And try to convince him that this wasn't a thing, um, and and unintentionally, the, the whole story we just told about about sugar and and the the you know the concentrated benefits of insiders rigging the system versus uh, the dispersed costs of, of sugar consumers. Yeah. Um, that is that is a fundamental critique of of any progressive aspiration to use a a government program to to fix something.
1: Right. Or even to promote something that they think is a good idea, yeah. Which you know, those two things fix bad things, promote good things, is a way to sort of categorize the progressive agenda. And you know, you see the same thing with home ownership. In you know, for the last century or so, the federal government has been promoting home ownership, and where that has um, gotten to, or where the rubber hit the road on that in a big way, is with the mortgage interest deduction. And so if you have a house and you own a mortgage, uh, you're paying interest to your lender and you get to deduct that interest on your income and your federal income tax uh, returns. Now, Government Accountability Office does studies on this one, too. And what they realize is because housing is counted as a, a, a capital good, it's counted as capital in the U.S. economy. What it does is it encourages overinvestment in this form of capital at the cost of underinvestment and other forms of capital, productive capital. And they even can kind of slice off how much GDP that's going to eat up. And uh, so, you know, again, was like, why do these programs exist? Um, they're net losers. And a few years ago, about a, about a decade ago, some members of Congress on the Republican side got a proposal far enough along to repeal the mortgage interest deduction to the point where the, the Republican leaders said, we are gonna pursue this. And I think it was a day, one day later, <laughs> after the National Association of Realtors, National Association of Home Builders, and others who are a the swarm beneficiaries of, lobbyists of these concentrated interests, yeah. they went knocking on doors, and the next thing you know, the, like the next day, oh, well, the, 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 the leaders are saying, actually, we didn't mean that. We're not gonna include that yeah. in what we're trying to do. It was dead. Yeah, And
0: that's like, uh, 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 I had a progressive friend of mine, Eric Liu, on the show, and we we had this argument about it wasn't really an argument, but you know whether or not you can do something about the the middlemen, the uh, the the bottom feeders, the people that that are that are that are stealing all of those rents in this process of of the political marketplace clearing, and you know he thinks the the people can do it, and and I think that's i've I've had those romantic hopes myself that mm-hmm. that the people could step in and expose some of these things, and I do think technology uh has leveled the playing field so much, but they will always get the meeting first. Jeff Bezos is always going to get a meeting yeah. before me. yeah, it's just the way it is, yeah, and that's that's the limits to what Buchanan was talking about. like politics without romance means um sort of curbing your grand designs about what you think you can do through politics. But so let's let's go back to the thing that you're working on back. um,
1: The center at the back
0: back in in Western North Carolina, um, uh, in terms of opportunity and and poverty alleviation, um, because this this was sort of your your upbringing. You saw that there was something wrong. What what is the solution? And uh, because there's been a lack of innovation and opportunity and you're kind of in the smoky mountains essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: between the Blue Ridge and Smokies is kind of exactly where we're situated. Look, I don't know what the solution is, but I think that, you know, on the margins and increments, we can we can build towards uh, making improvements more likely than otherwise. And so one of the things that the center's doing is trying to engage the general public in thinking about issues that matter, especially to North Carolina, but also more broadly. And so we published this study on economic mobility, and it turns out that, you know, one city in North Carolina, Winston-Salem, and certain zip codes in that area have the lowest, actually second lowest economic mobility in the whole country. That means that if you're born into poverty in that situation, your chances are the lowest compared to somebody being born into poverty in some other area of the country of getting out of poverty. There's a huge poverty trap there. And so we, we have begun to um, have public lecture on that. We, have, we, we published a, a study on that. We're shopping op-eds on it and so forth. Another issue that we talk about is immigration. Uh, North Carolina needs immigrants in order to, for the economy to be functioning, and um, especially at the low-skilled level because there's so much turnover in those jobs. Uh, we, we really rely on immigrants to fill those jobs. And so we have, you know, a study coming out on that. Uh, we ran an op-ed on this. We have a public lecture on that as well. We're supporting um, student research and faculty research projects on that. Same thing with the opioid and addiction crisis. And I'm talking about these things with one of my colleagues who I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in a while. He's a member of the Faculty Senate. He asks me, you know, hey, how are things going? What's going on with the center? And I tell him all those things. And he says, well, wait a second that doesn't sound at all like you're doing the bidding of the Koch brothers. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that what, what I mentioned a while ago is like the long play, letting the work of the center speak for itself, but more importantly, doing good work through the center that's going to matter and give people a sense of where the needle should be moved to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's, um, you know, here in Washington, D.C., um, there are certain issues that I call sort of transpartisan and you do see sort of libertarian Republicans like Rand Paul or Justin Amash or Thomas Massey working with progressive Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the drug war would be one of those things where where there seems to be, at least amongst um, some people on both sides, an, an acknowledgement that what we've been doing for the last 20, 50, 100 years has had all of these unintended consequences. And, and as a result, um, uh, the the drug situation in the U.S. is more dangerous than ever. Um, people that used to uh, abuse prescription drugs are now buying really dangerous, deadly drugs because the government has prohibited them from doing that legally. And it's it's all about economics. It's it's all straight up incentives, supply and demand, basic stuff. And and unfortunately, we're 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 doubling down on the drug yeah, war. Right. Right. Uh, we don't we, there doesn't seem to be learning at least at the federal level.
1: Yeah. Well, and any good that you think is um, so bad for people that you pass a law against it., um, the law does not remove the demand curve, right? in the in the economics uh, yeah. explanation in that in in that language, it doesn't remove the demand curve for it. And that's true for sex trade, for drug trade, whatever it is. And what it does, but what it does do is it is it moves that trade into the black market setting. And in the black market setting, things are not governed by uh, contract and rights that can be enforced by um, authorities, whatever they might be, the police or the courts. Uh, Things are uh, instead um, done by violence and by power. Uh, And so it's no secret, it's no mystery why through driving the drug trade into the black market, uh, you have the suppliers of those drugs, um, you know, you have this sort of self-selection effect of the, you know, the, the, worst kind of folks, the people who have the biggest capacity for violence and doing bad stuff to other people, uh, become the suppliers there. And so, you know, look, I, at the end of the day, I'm scratching my head and I'm saying again, it's like, why do these things exist? Yeah. And you have to, you know, look at what the incentive structure is for, uh, for the policymakers to sort of begin to figure that out.
0: Yeah. Bust yeah. Uh, talked about the seen and the unseen. Um, maybe he was the first public choice guy. Yeah, well, so, yeah. Uh, B- B- Buchanan would have to acknowledge that if he were still with us. Um, so, what is the? L- let's wrap this up. But, but give me, give me your prognosis. Um, you know, I, I went to uh, research you on Uncoke my campus. Okay yeah. And the, the good news is that it's actually a good resource for people I might want to have on my show because okay, there yeah, are yeah. there are actually uh, free market centers uh, popping up at a number of universities um, people that, that you likely know. Um, is there room for uh, intellectual dissent and free market ideas on college campus today? You know, um, yeah, I, th- I think that it's, it's
1: where is the pendulum swinging toward? It's interesting because 100 years ago when the Supreme Court was really looking closely at you know, free speech issues, especially on campuses, um, it was the left who was making the appeal. And it was the left who was being shut down by establishment and being unable to sort of voice their left uh, their 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 opinions from the left, and the law, rightfully so, you know, protected that that speech. It's a First Amendment issue. Uh, these days, it's the right who is making the appeal for um, yeah you know, more free speech or protection of free speech. Uh, and you know, I think that that does speak to the what has happened um, in the environment on college campuses. So if you look at say, what's the profile of most faculty, um, what's their political affiliation, you've seen over the past 25 years a pretty big increase in the number that identify as left or extreme left from something like 60% in 1990 to something like 90% today. And a lot of folks are worried about that. And their prognosis based on that worry is not a good one. Um, But, you know, look, we're not going to flip a light switch and have the circumstance and the situation become a good one overnight. So you have to chip away at the margins. And you know, look, I didn't set out to start the Center for Study for Enterprise with this objective in mind, but I think that one thing it's going to be doing is it's helping to chip away at these margins. And it is helping to move that pendulum more towards uh, you know, the university is supposed to be this sort of forum for all ideas. All ideas are comers. And um, it hasn't necessarily been that way. But you know we're, we're we're I think the pendulum's moving back. That one further thought on that actually, North Carolina about a year ago passed a, a law that drew the contours and drew the boundary lines over what is protected um, um, protest. So for example, you know some conservative speaker comes to campus, the liberals don't like that. They come and protest. To what extent is that protest protected? And North Carolina says it is protected up to the point where you disrupt the ability of the speaker to deliver their message and the speaker's listeners to hear that message. Um, so you can't, you know, bang loudly to disrupt the the talk. Uh, and then uh, it, it had to point out, by the way, that uh, if you engage in violence, that's not protected either. Of course, that's not what that that already wasn't protected. But some people think it's justified to engage in violence to shut down certain speakers who don't have the right to speak.
0: So North Carolina is is still relatively uh, free speech compared to say Berkeley where they don't seem to prevent violence in, in, in stopping speakers they don't like.
1: Right, uh, I don't know what other states have passed um, a similar type of law, I think there are others. Yeah. Um, pretty, but I'm pretty sure California is not one of them.
0: Yeah, yeah. well it sounds so reasonable, I, I assume California will be last to adopt it. That'd be it. the
1: first reason why they didn't, w- wouldn't do it. Yeah, okay thank yeah. you, this was super cool. Thanks Matt, and, yeah. uh, thanks for the beer. Uh, hopefully the
0: next time we talk you'll, you'll have created a much larger center of free enterprise. We'll have a more cheery,
1: uh, cheery discussion in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Cheers.
0: Thanks Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Make sure to subscribe and rate our podcast so we can reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.